Gracious Father, we come to you as, as the Almighty God, our Creator, the one who gave us life in the very beginning, the one who continues to sustain life. Um, Lord, apart from you, nothing that is would be, and that is our great trust, our great hope is that we know you exist, we know you love us, we know you're sustaining us, we know you have laid out for us an amazing hope that we cannot even begin to imagine, and that you have paid for it in full through the death and resurrection of your son, through whom we have forgiveness of sin and life eternal. Lord, I pray that this, this word that you have given to us in this ancient book and its symbols would speak powerfully to our hearts and minds and to us as a community of faith gathered in the name of Jesus to worship you. I pray this in his name. Amen. So I've done some um, foolish things in my life, and that's actually an understatement. I've done a lot of foolish things in my life. Uh, but one of them was a buddy and I decided that we were going to hike this craggy peak um, without any equipment. Uh, we had no crampons, we had uh, no topographical map, uh, we had no compass, and no jackets. We just saw this mountain peak, and, and it looked like it was a fairly straight shot up the middle to hike. And so, um, so we decided we were going to launch out. Now, call it the hubris of 20s, my 20s, or just call it plain stupid, whatever it was. I learned a lot from that ex experience. So... We sat out in the morning, again, with our eyes towards the mountain and what we perceived to be a fairly clear line up. And about two, three miles in, we realized that what we saw from the original vantage point was not true, or at least it wasn't true if you looked at it from multiple perspectives, because as we got over one small peak, we realized there's a ravine and then another peak and then another ravine and another peak. So what ended up, uh, what, what initially looked like a straight line up the mountain actually was like a, a veritable maze up and down and so forth. It was long, it was hard, and let me just say it was stupidly dangerous. But we had to continue on because any hiker or climber knows there's a point where, especially if you have no ropes, to go back is more dangerous than to go forward. So we went forward over some steep glaciers, no crampons. We basically found sticks and we're digging them into the snow and trying to make our way up a glacier and, and a couple near vertical scrambles and by the sheer grace of God, neither one of us fell off a cliff and died. Stupid, yeah. But I learned something important that day, uh, a principle of life, and that is the importance of looking at things from different angles. If I had taken out a topographical map with the elevation changes of the mountain, I could have seen that there was a whole bunch of, of like series of, of peaks before the big peak and series of, of canyons and so forth. I would have seen the dangers ahead of time if I could have looked at it from a topographical perspective that is from up high. Or if I could have turned the mountain around on kind of a 3D kind of a platform, I could have seen that, wow, it's not just a straight route, it's, it's, it's a whole bunch of things in between. And the importance of looking at something from different perspectives and, and different angles is very important to life. Um, without looking at something from different perspectives or different angles, not contradictory perspectives, by the way, but complementary perspectives, we can derail or, worse yet, crash and burn. The reason I say that is because the Bible has a way of providing different perspectives on the same thing. And wisdom and maturity requires us to look at the different angles that the Bible gives to us. So, for example, when we talk about the topic of salvation, like how God has worked in Christ to save us, 
Sometimes it speaks in the past tense. For by grace you have been saved. Past tense. There's other times where it says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That gives more of a present sense of salvation working itself out. At other times, we, we read, for example, 1 Peter chapter 1, that salvation is something that's ready to be revealed at the last day, this future. You misunderstand salvation if you only look at it from one perspective, but if you get the different perspectives on it, you get to understand the whole, that it's both past, present, and future. Which brings us to our topic. God has preserved in the Bible different perspectives on a very important topic for us, and that is earthly power, authority, government. Think Washington, D.C., think Kremlin, think Beijing. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, this has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with you. This last year and a half, we have struggled navigating how to relate to governing authorities over us, haven't we? Sometimes they seemed contradictory. They were, some were saying some things, others were saying a different thing. Federal government was saying one thing, state government was saying a different thing. We had to live underneath these governing authorities, and it's been difficult for almost everybody. Families, so forth. So it's a very important topic. How does the Christian relate to governing authority? And there's not just one perspective in the Bible. There's at least two. On the positive side, the one that we're most familiar with is the lens or the perspective on government that comes from Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, where we read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Now he's speaking to the church. We're supposed to obey our, our government. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists God, um, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain." For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on wrongdoers. So this is a very positive view of earthly power or government as an instrument, a servant of God's justice. That is to say, God has designed, well, let me back up and say, all authority comes from him. That includes both good and bad. But here, there is a a sense of positive. That is, God has ordained government to preserve society by punishing evil. That's verse 2. And for the good of its people. That's verse 4. So that's how good, positive government in the Bible functions. It originates with the Lord. There's nobody who sits in power who is not part of God's sovereign plan. But God has designed that power for the punishment of evil and the promotion of that which is good. That is good governance. And one of the reasons why we as Christians should wear our seatbelts... Not text while driving. Not burglarize somebody's house. Not break into somebody's car or steal their car. It's like the laws exist to punish evil and also to promote and establish and preserve that which is good. That's one angle or perspective on government in the Bible. A very good one. Necessary for uh, one for us. But that's not the only perspective in the Bible. There's another view 
of governing power on earth that is very different. And it comes to light in Revelation chapter 13. If you, it's easy to remember for me, Romans 13, Revelation 13. Both books start with R and both chapters are the same, 13. Gives to us a very different picture of earthly power. Now before I read it, at least a portion of it, let me just back up for a second and talk about how these chapters fit together. Chapter 12 envisioned this dragon, okay? Again, an image. And that image is identified as um, that which is Satan or uh, the serpent or what we know as the devil, which most of the world doesn't believe in anymore. But the Bible from beginning to end uh, insists he exists. He's very real and very active. So the dragon is a picture or the embodiment of the devil himself. And you get to the end of chapter 12, and you read this statement. Verse 17, this is the final verse of chapter 12. I kind of wish there was no chapter break here, but it says, And he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw, this is the very next statement, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and seven diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. So here you have this image of a dragon at the end of chapter 12 standing on the, sand, the shore, and this beast then arises out of the dark ocean, which in Revelation is a symbol of evil. It's equated with the bottomless pit in chapter 17. So you can almost picture in Star Warsian fashion the evil Emperor Palpatine calling forth his Sith Lord to do his bidding. Or if you're more of a Pirates of the Caribbean fan than Davy Jones calling up the Kraken. In, a, in essence, what we have here is the, the devil calls forth his earthly minion. Now, there's two beasts that rise in this, this chapter. The first one we look at this morning, the second one next week, and they kind of create what some have called the unholy trinity. There is this mimicking copycat kind of theme in the book of Revelation that the devil tries to mimic what God does, as I think you'll see in just a moment. So you have the dragon, beast number one, and beast number two, and they function differently. This is a picture, chapter 12, of earthly power that has become devilish, that has become satanic. It is not carrying out the function of government. Actually, it's doing the opposite. Now, let me just say, I, like I said to begin with, I, my fear is drowning you with symbols. I could just simply drown you with going comb, combing through all of these symbols and explaining them, but most of you would fall asleep and leave and not remember a thing I say. It's true. So let me just offer four points of understanding this beast that I think apply to us and close with an exhortation. So four points of understanding what this beast is, um, what it symbolizes, and then finishing with an exhortation to the church, which is in verse 10. So, what is this beast? Point number one to be drawn is the simple fact that this beast, whatever it is, we haven't gotten there yet, bears the image of the dragon. That is, it resembles the first part of chapter 13, the beast resembles the dragon of chapter 12. If you look at how each is described, I'll put them side by side here so you can see them. The dragon of chapter 12 has seven heads and ten horns, and these are symbols. Seven being the number of completion, perhaps of oppression, and ten horns, a symbol of authority. And on his head, seven diadems, again, authority. 
And then you come to the beast of 13, it's very similar. Seven heads, ten horns with ten diadems on its horns. That is to say, the beast is, if you will, in a manner of speaking, the incarnation of the devil himself. We, we, we know what it's like to have a child that looks like a parent. Well, this is like the devilish child of the devil himself. It's the beast. He resembles him. He is the earthly counterpart to the evil of hell. All right, so... So that's part one, is simply understanding that the beast bears the image of the dragon. This is an earthly manifestation of the heart and spirit and soul of the devil himself. Number two, some of these are going to be a little longer and some shorter. The beast is a composite. This beast of revelation is a composite of the prophet Daniel's beast symbolizing kingdoms and kings. Revelation is so filled with Old Testament. A lot of images drawn from the Old Testament. That's why I don't think you can really understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. So if you put side by side here, Daniel was a prophet in the, during the time of the Babylonian Empire. You read Daniel chapter 7, and, and he talks about four beasts that emerge in history, three of which were future to him. He was prophesying three empires that would come after the one he was in. So... These beasts of Daniel chapter 7 are described this way. Chapter 7, verse 4. The first was like a lion, symbolized the empire that he was a part of, served under. That is the Babylonian Empire. This is basic history, not just biblical history, but secular history as well. He sees the second beast, and the second one was like a bear, which symbolized the next empire, which was the Persian Empire. Verse 6, he says, After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, symbolizing the Grecian or Hellenistic Empire. And then in verse 7 of his vision, he says, after this, a fourth beast, and it had ten horns. So he has these four beasts that arise in his vision. It's, a, again, a symbolic vision that symbolize four earthly empires and kingdoms that, was, that, that would succeed each other in, in history. Here in chapter 13, all of them were joined together in some way, shape, or form. That is, parts of them all appear. So, its mouth, that is the beast of Revelation 13, our text, um, was like a lion's mouth. Corresponds to Babylonian Empire. Its feet were like bears. Corresponds to Persian Empire. It was like a leopard. And he had ten horns. Symbolizing the Roman Empire. The simple fact that Revelation 13 draws on Daniel indicates to me that what's being symbolized in this beast is earthly power. Kings, kingdoms, empires. And mind you, one of the differences between the dragon and the, the first beast is the beast wears his crowns on his horns as opposed to the head. Probably confusing you here. But telling us that this beast, whatever it is, now we've come to the fact that it is a king and kingdom and empire will rule, his authority's crown, will be in power or by way of force or perhaps military might. That's how he will rule, this beast. Power, force, military might. So that's the second thing. First, that it, this beast bears the image of the devil himself. The second is that it manifests itself in kings and kingdoms and empires, like on the geopolitical level. Again, think, I'm not making a judgment about this. 
Think Beijing, think Kremlin, think Washington. Those are the powers, the great powers of our time. Could one of them become a devilish beast? Good question. So that's the second thing. These correspond to an actual king, kingdom, or kingdoms. Third, the beast is transtemporal, is a transtemporal evil. Transtemporal simply meaning that it, it, does, it is, doesn't correspond to particularly one particular aspect of the future or period of time. That is, it emerges through history. And there's a couple things, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this, um, why I believe that to be the case. And let me just back up and say that there are some who believe this beast of chapter 13 corresponds to something that's going to happen in the distant future, this emergence of this beast over a period of seven years or perhaps three and a half years. Or the second interpretation is this beast kind of comes and goes. That's transtemporal. So a couple reasons why I think that's the case. One is the, the beast resembles the devil. Like the beast resembles a dragon, and the dragon is transtemporal. He was there at the birth of Christ to devour him, we saw in chapter 12. And he's existed before Christ, he exists after Christ, suggesting that the beast also is transtemporal. He exerts himself at different times, different places. The second reason is because if you were living in the first century and you were listening to this, especially if you had the book of Daniel, chapter 7, in your hand, and you read about the ten hordes, you'd be thinking, this is Rome. If it referred to Rome and Daniel, then certainly what they're experiencing is, is the beast in, in Roman form. And there were, as, as we know from history, there were a number of horrible, beastly kinds of emperors from Nero, who lit up Christians like Christmas trees, to Caligula, actually he was before Nero, to the time of the writing of this book, Emperor Domitian, who not only persecuted Christians, but referred to himself as God. The Roman power of the day. They would have seen, this is the beast. In one sense, you can look at Rome as Romans 13. One through four, this is ordained by God. In another sense, another perspective, this is the beast. This is the working of the evil one in society. So that's the second reason. They would have understood or or interpreted this as, as in fact, Rome. But then third, there's this interesting... Well, let me back up for a second. It fits also within things that John says elsewhere. We've all heard of the Antichrist, kind of like spooky thing. But John tells us in his epistle, he says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. In other words, yes, it's future. They're coming, but they're also here. There's a present reality with kind of a future anticipation. The third reason is there's this interesting little statement here that this beast, he says, one of the heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. That sounds a lot like death and resurrection. In my opinion, kind of a poor translation, a literal translation of this is, one of the heads was as slain to death, but its plague of death was healed. That's a literal translation. That is, the wound in the Greek actually means plague. 
would suggest that this wound was inflicted by God himself. So one of the heads of this beast were wounded to death, and this wound was healed. Now, I think this is an allusion to Genesis 3.15, where, where God tells the, the serpent, he's like, listen, someone's going to come, and he's going to strike you on the head, a mortal blow. That God has dealt a mortal blow to the dragon, and therefore the beast, by way of the cross of Jesus Christ. And yet at the same time, this beast, this satanic influence, while it has lost its dominion, still exists and still influences. That is, it looks like it has been healed. So how this might work itself out is just when you think the beast is dead, Nero's dead, he committed suicide. And there, by the way, there was a rumor that he actually came back from the dead. It was just a rumor. Um, some people actually pretended that they were Nero. But that, I don't think, is what's in view here. What's in view here is like, okay, so Nero committed suicide and died, and all the Christians go, yes, the beast is dead. Then Domitian comes about, and guess what? The beast part two. Like, it just keeps coming back. It's like, it looks like he's dead, and then he's healed. And it could be Hitler, and hey, look, the beast is dead, and then you have a Pol Pot or a Khmer Rouge emerging in history. These destructive, evil expressions in a political realm that massacre people. Could we not say that these kinds of emergences in history of evil are in fact an expression of the dragon through the beast, that the beast is at work? It's not just some future entity. It's a present reality in our world. Even though government can exist and function good, well, there's always lurking this influence to hijack, take over, and destroy. And we're told, if we compare this passage to Paul, who isn't speaking in apocalyptic language, that is, isn't speaking in, in images, it would seem that there is this final, not to scare anybody, but there is this final climactic time where this beast in all of its fullness comes out. Paul speaks of this in one of his, his epistles, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 4. He talks about this man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, proclaiming himself to be God. This would suggest that at the end of history, there will be a final manifestation that is perhaps global in its scope of this beastly kind of governing authority. Again, I don't say that to scare you. It's just that's kind of how this lays out. So this beast is a governing authority. This is the image of the dragon himself, the devil. He's transtemporal in power. He comes and goes and, and will manifest himself one final time. And here's the fourth point. That this beast, this, this power is given authority to blaspheme God and conquer his people. It's a bit of an interesting side note. Like I said, there is this copycat theme. Just as the dragon gives authority to the wounded, slain beast and is worshipped by the whole world, 
So in chapter 4 and 5, it is God the Father who gives authority to the slain lamb who is worshipped by heaven, earth, and what's under the earth. There's like, the devil is a poor copycat of God's work. And that is part of this. And that's his intent, is to be worshipped by the world. If you want to know the heart and the spirit of the devil, it has been to worship, be worshipped by the world. And any governing authority that aligns with that has become a devilish, beastly authority. There's this fourth. The beast is given authority to blaspheme God and conquer his people. I'm just going to read this. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. That means, while it is a very uh, physical, real rule, it is limited. 42 months. Some have taken that to be three and a half years at the end of time. Others, like myself, have seen this as the period between the first coming and second coming of Christ in which the church has been battered for centuries. Continuing on in verse 6, it says, It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaming his, uh, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints. Those are people who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ and have faith in him. And to conquer them, not spiritually, but physically. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Sounds very similar to the slain lamb. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who was slain. That's Jesus. It is this beast is self-exalting, self-deifying, desiring and willing to blaspheme God to take the number one place in the universe. That is the heart of the devil himself, and that is the heart of the beast. To be worshipped by all and to blaspheme the works of God. And as I said, there have been people through history, kings through history, who have in fact claimed some posthumously by Roman senates and some by themselves like the mission to be God themselves. That is the heart of the beast. If I was to sum it up, self-exalting, self-deifying, as soon as a country or governing authority seeks to be the savior of the world, it has entered a divine zone. Let me say that again. As soon as a governing authority seeks to be the savior of the world, it has become a beastly expression of something dark. But there are those who refuse. I saw the implication is there are those among these nations who will refuse to worship the beast the self-deifying human power structure. And it's those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Those who belong to Jesus. They will not be deceived, ultimately. They will not bow the knee. 
They will see it for what it is. Why? Because they have perspective. That's the beauty of chapter 13. It enables us to see things differently. We can't just see governing powers through the lens of Romans 13, 1 through 4. We have to see it also through this lens and be able to discern and be vigilant and watchful to when has an authority become, in fact, satanic? It's those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of life. That is those who have come humbly before God and said, I am a sinner. I am jacked up. I'm broken. I'm not a best father. I'm not the best husband. But I know I need a savior. And that savior is not my government. My savior is Jesus. And to accept that. And then, you know what? That proves that your name was written in the book of life. And here, let me just kind of bring this down to a point. It's like, I believe you only believe you belong to one or the other. There's no middle ground here. We, we, we're talking that there's a kingdom of darkness and there's a kingdom of light. You either belong to the beast or you belong to the lamb. And there's no in between. And just so you see the difference between the two kingdoms and the two kings or series of kings, how different they are. The beast rises from below, grasping at power, grasping at divinity, and willing to step on whoever and destroy whoever to get there. How many of you love selfishly ambitious people? Not too many of you. Because they'll be your friend until your friendship doesn't suit their purpose. Then they'll step on you to get ahead. You don't want a friend like that. When the devil came to the first man and woman at the very beginning, he seemed like their friend. Hey, if you want to be more like God, have some dinner over here at this tree. And they did. They listened. It sounded like a friendly voice. And when they did, guess what? They were thrown out. They were tools. They were used so that he could get what he wanted. That is a spirit of the devil himself to self-exalt to the highest place, from below to the highest place. Nobody likes friends like that. Who wants a king like that? Who willing to step on whoever, destroy whoever to get ahead, to get more power? I certainly wouldn't want to live in that kingdom. But here is the big difference. We serve a king who came from above. Think about this. This speaks to the heart of God and the heart of his kingdom. We're told that Jesus, though he existed in the form of God, he was God didn't consider equality with him something to be strive after. He didn't clutch after it like the devil does. Instead, he does the opposite. It says he emptied himself. And God took the form of a man. And not just a man, but as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Entirely different. The dragon self-exalts, grasping at divinity, and Jesus himself lays aside his glory, comes down to die, and to, to lay the foundation of his empire in his own blood. That is a kingdom and a king I want to follow. From above, humble and emptied. That's the spirit of the gospel. And why? In response, Christians go, you know what? You did that for me. Your kingdom is built on your own blood, and you have offered it freely by grace alone. I want to live for you the rest of my life. 
You, you, which kingdom would you rather be in and which king would you rather serve? Give me the lamb any day of the week. Let's finish with just an exhortation. You know, we live in the United States, which is wonderful. I have a flag flying at my house. I love living in this country. But there are a lot of Christians that live in countries not like this one, who every day live in fear. And the day may come where we have, we may live in that same kind of fear. Things are changing quickly and rapidly and all that. How are we going to respond? If we find ourselves in a situation where a government that serves the cause of justice becomes like a beastly, destructive, tyrannical government. Well, one response is to form Christian militias. Arm ourselves with AR-15s and IEDs and get in our SUVs and armor them up and take down the beast. And that's not what we're exhorted to do. Now, let me be clear about something, because I, I know I can hear somebody asking, so do we do nothing if that ever happens? Or what about World War II? You know, there's, let's just call them the beast of the Third Reich. Would I storm the beaches of Normandy if I was told to go? Well, I think so. That would be an ex a logical extension of Romans 13, 1 through 4, in which we serve the authority that God has set in place against a tyrannical authority, in which I think it's perfectly legitimate to be a soldier or to be someone in law enforcement. That's a logical extension of Romans 1 or 13, 1 through 4. But it's different when you're being persecuted for your faith. What happens when people are coming after you because you love Jesus? You going to form Christian militias and fight back? There was somebody that tried that once in the garden. It was Peter. They came to get Jesus, you remember? It was dark and it was the night, and Peter thought, no, I'm just going to one-man militia. <laughs> Take out my sword, and I'm just going to cut off Malchus' ear. And she's like, whoa, listen, if you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And don't you think that I could, like, call a thousand legions and like, like, I could mop this whole thing up in two seconds? But Jesus said, no, it's, it's, this is my destiny. This is my, my path. I came to do this. I came to lay down my life. So he embraced the path of suffering and death. He could have responded. He could have reacted. He could have rebelled. But he didn't because that wasn't his path. So in that light, look at the final exhortation. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. That, he used that phrase. This phrase is found in the chapter 2 and 3 with reference to the church. So he's speaking to the church. If you have ears to hear what God's saying to you, don't be reactive, don't rebel, don't in these times if you're being persecuted for faith. He says, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he is to be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. The idea behind this is like, listen, if you're being led captive for your faith, then be led captive. Embrace that as your path and do so for the sake of the Lord. If you're going to be taken and slain by the sword, that is, you're going to die for your faith. Well, then with the sword, you must be slain. In the same way that Jesus embraced his path. We have seen already the great one of the great themes of Revelation is God wins by dying and suffering. So when, if, where that time comes where you find yourself facing this 
what I think could be described as a satanic oppression and you're being persecuted for your faith for whatever reason. It's not a time to rebel. It's a time to embrace the same suffering Jesus did when he refused to allow Peter to pull out the sword. And instead, Peter would later find out and pay with his own life in Rome that God calls his people to often suffer and die. That's a real message for us Christians. It's not just about being happy and fat and having all of your best life now. It's like there are times in which we are going to be called to take the simple route of humble but courageous suffering for the sake of Jesus. To finish this off, I just want to encourage you to be vigilant. We've been given this perspective on government that kind of complements Romans 13, 1 through 4 for a reason, so that we can see things for what they are, so we're not left in the dark, knowing full well that at the end of days, there's going to be one kingdom that stands supreme, eternal. And that, that is the king, the kingdom of the one who gave his life for us. Like perfect setup for what we get to experience. This is our communion. This is coming back to the very heart of, of our victory, and that is the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. For the sake of jacked up people like you and me who have said, Lord, I, I can't do this, but I know you can and have, and I trust you. And as we do this, we remember him. We remember the death blow that he dealt to the evil one by giving his life. And to remember our forgiveness is found in him, nothing else. So if you are a, a follower of Christ, as you have faith in him, um, then you're welcome to come to the table. And uh, it's pretty free form. We're going to have two guys coming up and, and giving out uh, the elements. Um, I, we have gluten-free most of you know this, but for new people, we have gluten-free. If that's an issue for you, you just need to ask for it. And, um, and as the music starts, just come forward and go back and just contemplate what Jesus did for you. And uh, perhaps a time of just recommitting yourself to, to following him, the path of complete surrender. Let's pray. And as I pray, if I can have those who are serving come up. Lord, we thank you for... Well, we thank you for Jesus above all else. Thank you for the hope that he gives to us. Thank you for demonstrating to us what true emptying humility looks like in the person of Christ. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts for the blood of Jesus that alone cleanses us. We ask for an increase and intensification of our hope in the future and allow us the courage and the faith to live each day honoring you in all that we say, all that we do. In Jesus' name, 